bodies exist to secure responsible government and to execute the will of the people. From these great tasks, both of the old bodies have turned aside. Instead of instruments to promote the general welfare, they have become the tools of corrupt interests which use them impartially to serve their selfish purposes. Behind the ostensible government sits enthroned an invisible government, owing no allegiance and acknowledging no responsibility to the people. To destroy this invisible government, to dissolve the unholy alliance between corrupt business and corrupt politics, is the first task of the statesmanship of the day. Hello everyone, and welcome to episode 15 of the Energy of Empire series. At this point, I'm leaving World War I behind and going back across the Atlantic to the United States. Over the coming episodes, I'll be moving through the presidency of Woodrow Wilson to the point the US enters the war. In this episode, I'm going to turn my attention to the USA itself, examining how its transformation into a global hegemon was mirrored by domestic reforms that, I contend, amount to nothing less than a silent revolution. I'll be looking at how the empire turned inwards. The voice you heard in the opening clip was that of our old friend Theodore Roosevelt. It's from his 1912 presidential election campaign speech. In language reminiscent of Donald Trump's deep state, he is promising to destroy the invisible government of corporate interests corrupting Washington DC. Roosevelt, who had certainly been a reformer during his presidency, declined to run in 1908. He was honouring a pledge not to seek a third term. It was actually part of his justification for increasing presidential powers that a US president couldn't be a dictator because his position was not permanent. He headed off to Africa where he and his companions are said to have killed over a thousand large animals, including six rare white rhinos. It seems this level of killing wasn't entirely without controversy even at that time, and he did have to defend his actions from critics. As we've previously seen, Republican William Howard Taft had become president. The last events I covered in the US were the overthrows of the governments of Nicaragua and Honduras during his presidency. Taft was not a particularly ideological imperialist, however. Rather, he engaged in foreign interventions only for the benefit of American business interests. Taft had supported international arbitration efforts as a way of avoiding war. In this he was backed by the conservative business community that had largely supported previous peace movements. Roosevelt ridiculed this foolhardy idealism and insisted on the realism of warfare as the only solution to serious international disputes. Domestically, Taft is one of the very few presidents to limit his own power, reigning in authorities acquired during the previous administration. Roosevelt had hoped Taft would carry on his legacy of expanding government control over the economy. Instead, he came to see him as an agent of the forces of reactionary and political crookedness. He saw it as his mission to destroy the invisible government, consisting of an alliance between corrupt business and corrupt politics. And so Roosevelt went back on his promise to never run again and contested Taft for the 1912 Republican nomination. When he lost, he formed his own Progressive Party, which came to be known as the Bull Moose Party. It's an interesting story, so I'll tell it. The name comes from an incident where Roosevelt was shot during a campaign speech. The would-be assassin, John Schrank, 
gave his reason as not thinking it right that anyone should violate an unwritten rule on not holding the presidency more than twice. Roosevelt, whose life was likely saved by his glasses case, said to the crowd, Friends, I shall ask you to be as quiet as possible. I don't know whether you fully understand that I have just been shot, but it takes more than that to kill a bull moose. He continued on of his speech, and the bullet remained lodged in his chest for the rest of his life. Whatever else he was, I can't help but harbour some begrudging admiration at this moment. The Bull Moose Party platform proposed a massive expansion of federal government power, to include a national health service to encompass all existing government medical agencies, a form of social insurance for the elderly and disabled people, workers' rights, such as an eight-hour workday and a minimum wage, a federal securities commission, farm subsidies, workmen's compensation for work-related injuries, a tax on inheritance, and a constitutional amendment to allow for federal income tax. Whether you agree with any of these policies or not, you can see this represents a massive departure from the limited government ideology on which the United States was founded. Roosevelt was proposing nothing short of a second American Revolution, in which the Constitution would be essentially shredded. The Republican Party at this time contained many progressives, people who supported a vast expansion of federal government power. Essentially, they wanted the federal government to become a national one. Roosevelt's Bull Moose Party therefore pulled a great many votes away from Taft, allowing the Democrat Woodrow Wilson to take the presidency. Roosevelt came in second, the last time a third party would beat one of the major two. The split essentially created the modern Republican Party by pulling away the progressives who would in future vote Democrat. This left the more market-orientated Republicans to take control of the party. It might appear that the business community would oppose the Bull Moose platform, desiring to remain free of government oversight. Whilst that's certainly true for the vast majority of them, Roosevelt's run was actually sponsored by financier John Pierpoint Morgan, one of the wealthiest men in the United States. Morgan did this not to get Roosevelt elected, but to ensure William Taft wasn't. Unlike Roosevelt, Taft had not been supportive of Morgan's financial interests as president. Woodrow Wilson had appeared as a compromise candidate. In reality, and as America would soon come to find out, he supported the expansion of state power every bit as much as Roosevelt. In historical rankings of US presidents, Wilson generally performs well, often breaking inside the top 10. In fact, it's probably only his overt racism, strong even for its time, that prevents him from performing even better. If you look at rankings exclusively from libertarian sources, however, Wilson often comes in as the number one worst president, or jockeys for that position with distant cousin Franklin Roosevelt and Abraham Lincoln. In non-libertarian polls, these two are almost always jockeying for first place. It seems to be the more young American males die on a president's watch, the better they are considered to have performed. What accounts for the polarised adulation and abhorrence Woodrow Wilson provokes? Well, it really depends on your view of the nation-state. Wilson, perhaps more than any other president up until that point, redefined what the United States was. He led a quiet revolution, moving the country away from freedom and markets towards state central planning and control. 
This process massively occurred during both the Roosevelt and Wilson presidencies. Both of these men were strangely defined through childhood illnesses. Roosevelt had been a sickly, asthmatic child, who compensated by becoming a man's man, pursuing all sorts of outdoor activities. His childhood games of dressing up as a soldier ended with him putting the United States into wars with Spain and the Philippines. Wilson, by contrast, suffered from what was likely some form of dyslexia. He didn't learn to read before age 12. His compensation was to become president of Princeton University, and still to this day, he is the only US president to hold a doctorate. I've previously expressed that Theodore Roosevelt, with his bloodlust and his love of killing and war, could reasonably be considered insane. In a different way, I think the same could be said for Woodrow Wilson. He firmly believed God had chosen him to be president. He believed he could embody some sense of a national will, and he divided the world up into camps of good and evil, embracing a George W. Bush, you're either with me or with the terrorists attitude. He was a man who lacked the capacity to recognise any limits on his abilities. Historian C.J. Kilmer of the Dangerous History podcast has produced a multi-part biography of Wilson, evaluating him from a libertarian perspective. I'll play some clips that illustrate Wilson's character. Just to note, I've edited some of them down to the precisely relevant parts. In the first clip, Kilmer refers to Wilson's worldview as Manichaean, which simply means dualistic, dividing the world up into forces of good and evil. In an essay entitled Christ's Army, young Thomas Woodrow articulated a militantly Manichaean version of Christianity that he never really turned away from or significantly modified for the rest of his life. Wilson begins the essay in the first sentence describing, quote, Mankind as divided into two great armies. The field of battle is the world. From the abodes of righteousness advances the host of God's people under the leadership of Christ. End quote. He then goes on to describe this righteous phalanx in a bit more detail before turning his sights on the other side. Quote, from the opposite side of the field, advancing from the tents of wickedness, come the hosts of sin, led by the prince of lies himself, riding upon death's horse. Behind him, a mighty army marshaled by fiends under the dark banners of iniquity. The object of the warfare on the part of the first is to gain glory for their great leader, as well as the best good of the conquered, by persuading them to leave the ranks of the evil one and enlist under their great redeemer. That of the other to entice as many as will listen to them, to go with them by the alluring paths of worldliness to everlasting destruction. The foes meet upon the great battlefield of everyday life. End quote. He then goes on to briefly describe a battle between the two sides before continuing, quote, Surely in this great contest there is a part for everyone, and each one will be made to render a strict account of his conduct on the day of battle. Will anyone hesitate as to the part he shall take in this conflict? Will anyone dare to enlist under the banner of the Prince of Lies? under whose dark folds he only marches to the darkness of hell. For there is no middle course, no neutrality. Each and every one must enlist either with the followers of Christ 
or those of Satan. End quote. Hardcore Manichaeanism. Now, obviously, this will manifest itself constantly throughout Wilson's career, including in his rhetoric and the propaganda put out by the government once the U.S. gets into World War I. Demonizing the Germans as not just being America's opponents in a war or anything like that, but as being a bunch of monsters, and demonizing anyone who's not down for the struggle against the Germans as not just being mistaken or having a different perspective, but as being fundamentally evil and unpatriotic, and being under the sway of the forces of darkness. Kilmer then discusses Wilson's rather startling view of empathy, and how it has no role in politics. Wilson clearly had a very Hegelian notion of leadership. And Hegel's idea of leadership is essentially a version of the great man version of history. The idea is that you have these great individuals who step up into the proper historical moment and cause history to progress by working their will upon their nation. In a lecture entitled Leaders of Men, which Wilson delivered on several occasions in 1889 and 1890, he contrasted political leaders with more kind of literary and intellectual types. Wilson says, quote, The men who act stand nearer to the mass of men than do the men who write, and it is at their hands that new thought gets its translation into the crude language of deeds. End quote. So here he seems to be drawing a hard line between sort of intellectuals and writers and real-world political leaders. And one of the key differences he cites is that political leaders have to let go of things like nuance and empathy in order to be able to appeal to the masses and get things done. Wilson says, quote, How can any man whose method is the method of artistic completeness of thought and expression, whose mood is the mood of contemplation, for a moment understand or tolerate the majority whose purpose and practice is to strike out broad, rough-hewn policies, whose mood is the mood of action? The true leader of men is equipped by lacking certain sensibilities, which the literary man, when analyzed, is found to have as a chief part of his makeup. He lacks that subtle power of sympathy that enables the men who write the great works of the imagination to put their minds under the spell of a thousand motives, not their own, but the living force in those whom they interpret. He, meaning the leader, could not write fiction. End quote. Now, Wilson used the term sympathy in that statement, but I really think empathy is what he's actually talking about here. So Wilson is saying that empathy, the ability to see multiple perspectives of issues and to kind of put yourself in other people's shoes, is a positive attribute for an author, especially a fiction. But that for a political leader, empathy is a liability. By the way, what's the term for a person who lacks empathy? Hmm. Yeah, there is a term, right? Oh, let me see. Oh, yeah. Psychopath. I find this remarkable. It's not unusual to find people who are locked into their own worldview, incapable of seeing another perspective, or unaware they even exist. What is unusual is finding someone who is fully aware of different perspectives, but sees ignoring them as a virtue. C.J. Kilmer goes on to quote Wilson's view of British Prime Minister William Gladstone, 
who he saw as being paralysed by his ability to see all the points of view. A little later on in Leaders of Men, he mentions one of the criticisms that had been floating about regarding the late 19th century British statesman William Gladstone, who was kind of the great classical liberal of British politics at the time. And Wilson says that this one criticism of him that many made was that Gladstone simply had too much empathy and nuance, and that this prevented Gladstone from being as effective in politics as he otherwise might have been. Wilson says, quote, He could not help seeing two sides of a question. The force of objections evidently told upon him, and his conclusions seemed the result of a nice balance of considerations, not the commands of an unhesitating conviction. A party likes to be led by very absolute opinions. It chills to hear it admitted that there is some reason on the other side. Kilmer then examines Wilson's imperialistic view of the presidency. Wilson writes that, in their pursuit of checks and balances, the framers of the Constitution had in fact originally envisioned a pretty humble and limited presidency. But that, quote, We have grown more and more inclined from generation to generation to look to the president as the unifying force in our complex system, the leader of both his party and of the nation. To do so is not inconsistent with the actual provisions of the Constitution. It is only inconsistent with a very mechanical theory of its meaning and intention. End quote. Wilson then goes on to describe this new vision of the presidency in very mystical-sounding terms, saying that a good presidential candidate in these circumstances would be, quote, a man who will be and who will seem to the country in some sort an embodiment of the character and purpose it wishes its government to have. A man who understands his own day and the needs of the country, and who has the personality and the initiative to enforce his views both upon the people and upon the Congress. End quote. In other words, it's the vision of the presidency that is mostly dominated with few exceptions, all of American history, since at least Teddy Roosevelt's administration. He then goes on to make a case that a few prior presidents had sort of made, including, ironically, given Wilson's distaste for him, Andrew Jackson. The argument being that the president should be above the other branches of the federal government because he and he alone represents the whole nation. Only, of course, Wilson is going to take this argument much further than Jackson or any other earlier president ever had. Wilson writes that the president, quote, is at once the choice of the party and of the nation. He is the party nominee and the only party nominee for whom the whole nation votes. Members of the House and Senate are representatives of localities. There is no national party choice except that of president. No one else represents the people as a whole, exercising national choice. End quote. Therefore, Wilson writes of the president, quote, He can dominate his party by being spokesman for the real sentiment and purpose of the country, by giving direction to opinion, by giving the country at once the information and statements of policy which will enable it to form its judgments alike of parties and men. For he is also the political leader of the nation, or has it in his choice to be. 
the nation as a whole has chosen him and is conscious that it has no other political spokesman. His is the only voice in national affairs. Let him once win the admiration and confidence of the country, and no other single force can withstand him. No combination of forces will easily overpower him. His position takes the imagination of the country. He is the representative of no constituency, but of the whole people. When he speaks in his true character, he speaks for no special interest. If he rightly interpret the national thought and boldly insist upon it, he is irresistible. If he lead the nation, his party can hardly resist him. His office is anything he has the sagacity and force to make it. The president is at liberty, both in law and conscience, to be as big a man as he can. His capacity will set the limit. And if Congress be overborne by him, it will be no fault of the makers of the Constitution. It will be from no lack of constitutional powers on its part, but only because the president has the nation behind him, and Congress has not. End quote. Wow. Talk about a monarchical, imperial, strongman version of the presidency, where the only limit to the president's power is basically how much he can make happen by force of will and personality, and by manipulating public opinion. Wilson also briefly mentions the president's power in foreign policy as another tool in his toolbox to make the government bend to his will, writing, quote, One of the greatest of the president's powers I have not yet spoken of at all, his control, which is very absolute, of the foreign relations of the nation. The initiative in foreign affairs, which the president possesses without any restrictions whatever, is virtually the power to control them absolutely. The president can never again be the mere domestic figure he has been throughout so large a part of our history. The nation has risen to the first rank in power and resources. We can never again see him the mere executive he was in the 30s and 40s. He must stand always at the front of our affairs, and the office will be as big and as influential as the man who occupies it. End quote. Wilson never uses the term imperial to describe this vision of the presidency, of course, but that's obviously what this amounts to, at least in my mind. Finally, and perhaps most revealingly of all, there is Wilson's belief that he was selected for his role by God. So Wilson was a hardcore Manichaean from a very early age, and when he entered real-world politics much later in life, he continued to see everything that way. And he constantly said things to the effect that he had been chosen to lead, not just by the American people, but even by God. And so no one could possibly oppose him for any reasonable or just reasons. And just as one little example of this, in 1913, Democratic National Committee Chairman William McCombs asked Wilson for a political favor in return for McCombs having helped Wilson get elected president. And Wilson wouldn't do the favor, and his response to McCombs was, quote, Whether you did little or much, Remember that God ordained that I should be the next president of the United States. Neither you nor any other mortal could have prevented that. End quote. So, you might say Wilson was a Sith Lord, 
who drank heavily from his own Kool-Aid and literally thought he was the instrument chosen by God to transform the U.S. and ultimately the world. Gee, what could possibly go wrong? For the remainder of this episode, I'm going to examine some of the ways in which the federal government extended control over the states during what's known as the Progressive Era. In a sense, the individual states could also be considered as foreign territories, colonised by an imperial federal government as it transformed itself into a national one. This isn't to say state good, federal bad. State governments themselves could also act in ways that suppressed liberty. In a sense, then, what we are really witnessing is colonization by an ideology. I propose that this amounts to a second American Revolution, similar in principle, if not pace, to the ones taking place in Italy and Germany around this time. Unlike the dramatic, sudden, and highly visible European revolutions, which advertised themselves as being a break with what had gone before, the American Revolution was slow, steady, and often invisible. Its spokesman would always reference continuity with tradition, emphasise reform rather than revolution, whilst making changes equally as dramatic. The USA was transformed from a collection of individual states, resting on the value of limited government liberty, into one big corporate imperial state. Bureaucracy could be said to be the third horn of that beast. Why would big business support this? Surely they are opposed to expansions of state regulation. To explain this, I'll draw on the writing of economist and historian Murray Rothbard. There are essentially three models which seek to explain why governments enact regulations. The first, and most obvious one, is the public interest theory, which argues that regulation is designed for and ultimately benefits the general public. Then there's the bureaucratic theory, which argues that regulations are enacted to empower various bureaucrats and government agencies. Finally, there's the capture theory, which contends that regulation, purportedly designed to curb business abuses, is actually often captured by the biggest of those businesses in order to weaken their competitors. A corollary of this would be that, rather than sitting back and capturing regulation, these same businesses are actually active in its creation. Observing that this is indeed the case, big businesses do lobby for regulation, Rothbard concluded these second and third explanations, the bureaucratic and capture theories, are what's really going on. Public interest theory is merely propaganda, generated by these same businesses to sell regulation to the masses. The people buy into a marriage of corporation and state, believing it is for their benefit. Rothbard is essentially proposing that the political left is ultimately a right-wing plot. I'll run through some examples now of where imperialist and corporatist interests sought to take over society. Let's start by looking at compulsory schooling. I've touched upon the role of schooling as a weapon of empire to control the minds of the next generation of a subjugated people. Schooling is used to break them away from their language and culture and thereby erode their resistance to their new masters. We saw an example of this in the first country I looked at in this series, Hawaii. The annexation of Hawaii brought a process of Americanization in the local society. This process included the imposition of an educational system that marginalized the values of the local population. 
the local language was replaced by that of the settlers. In 1896, under the authority of the Republic of Hawaii, a law was passed that stated that all public school instruction must take place in English. So they didn't outright ban Hawaiian, but in effect they did, because they said to everyone, you must learn English, you must use English, and only English in your schools. And so parents became much more reluctant to use Hawaiian language in their homes. And certainly in the schools, many children were reprimanded for using Hawaiian language when they were expected to be using English. Is when the U.S. took over our education, there it went. They took our language, they took our land, they took our identity, and they nearly succeeded in taking our will to live. The original American imperial template for schooling as a means of social control was developed to subdue the Native Americans. The Native American boarding school era is a dark chapter of American history. The policy was known as assimilation. Everything Native was to be stripped away. The thought was to kill the Indian and save the man. Their language was to be unspoken. If the Great Spirit had desired me to be a white man, he would have made me so in the first place. Sitting Bull. Stories are told of Native children doing everything they could to escape boarding schools. Home was far away. They longed for anything familiar. Many were unsure as to what had happened to them. They came from another world. Children took pride in their long hair. It was a symbol of strength and dignity. Their hair was cut to Anglo standards. Native clothes changed to military-style uniforms. They were forbidden to practice their way of life in the early boarding school years. Previously, relationships had been based upon the natural world and each other. Prayer and ceremony were important aspects of life. The early schools were run with military precision. 
It was more accurately should be called ethnic cleansing rather than assimilation. And it has had devastating effects on my people. I think that was a time when the, the government really felt like um, they could, that was their last option, you know, with the so-called Indian problem that they had um, to deal with. And, um, and it was the last option to go for, for the children. This photo from the Pine Ridge Sioux Reservation shows families camped near a boarding school in South Dakota. Close family proximity was discouraged. Assimilation affected the Utes in a very tragic way. Um, it was so ineffective that it, it did not train us to become uh, competent in the white world. And it took us away from our own culture, um, so much so that we weren't even competent as Indians anymore. It would be naive to think then that the same government that uses schooling to subdue foreign populations employs the exact same system to develop the domestic one to the fullest of its abilities. If it's a system of control in one geographical area, Surely it's going to be a system of control in another. Indeed, that's what we find. Prior to the Progressive Era, individual states had enacted compulsory schooling laws to various degrees. This is in spite of Thomas Jefferson's warning that it is better to tolerate the rare instance of parents refusing to let their child be educated than to shock the common feelings and ideas by the forcible transportation and education against their will. The state that led the way in ignoring Jefferson was Massachusetts, which had insisted on some level of oversight of education for more than 200 years and made school attendance compulsory from 1852. This was done to ensure conformity to the state's Puritan tradition was maintained. Both Roosevelt and Wilson advocated compulsory schooling as a method of eroding the diverse cultures of people within the United States. In 1893, Roosevelt stated in a speech, In our public schools, the lesson should be conducted in no language but English, neither in German, French, Spanish, or any other, exactly as the children should be taught to speak United States and to think United States and to be United States. Wilson stated, prior to taking office, that Our problem is not merely to help the students adjust themselves to world life, but to make them as unlike their fathers as we can. Under the Constitution, the federal government had no role in education. This began to change in 1917, when Wilson signed the Smith-Hughes Act into law. This act provided $1 million to any state that agreed to improve its public schools by providing vocational educational programs. The consequence, of course, is that the federal government can from then on control education by threatening to withdraw the funds. This became a general template for how states would be controlled by Washington, D.C. I'll leave schooling there as it's a huge subject and one I'd like to cover further. In particular, there is the issue of educational funding from the big foundations, like Rockefeller and Carnegie, and what exactly their goals were. I'll move on now to look at the regulatory state. 
1906, Roosevelt passed the Pure Food and Drug Act, in which Congress granted itself the right to regulate these things. This would be the basis for the Food and Drug Administration. The act was supported by the food industries who saw it as a way to hamstring their competitors. It was used to go after manufacturers of watered-down whiskey, by those who only produce straight whiskey. The dairy and sugar industries used it to go after margarine and glucose producers. When Henry John Hines developed a way to make ketchup without additives, he pushed for a federal ban on additives, which bankrupted his competition and granted him a virtual monopoly. I'll play a clip from a Reason TV documentary showing how this has worked out over time in the dairy industry. This is a peaceful, serene place, and these people come from Los Angeles County and invade. There was a loud banging on the back gate. And I said, what's going on? He goes, we have a warrant to search the premises. And then they drew their guns. I was scared. I didn't know what was going on. One of my worst days, one of my family's worst days. Had this armed raid uncovered a weapons stockpile, foiled a terrorist plot? No. What government agents were after was this, raw milk, a danger to society, or so the Food and Drug Administration tells us. The class of foods most scrutinized, it seems to us, is anything having to do with raw dairy. Raw milk, whether it's cow or goat. In the past three years, there have been at least eight government raids across the U.S. involving raw dairy, according to the Farm to Consumer Legal Defense Fund. In this security camera footage, we see agents entering Rossum's kitchen. Guns drawn. Jarrell Winterhawk, a manager, has worked at Rossum for four years and was there the morning of the raid. We heard a banging on the back door. Uh, one of my workers, helpers, he went out there and says, hey, there's a cops out here. The police presented a warrant, so Jarrell let them in. They made me get out of the kitchen and I had to go sit over there on a chair and they searched me. They started walking around, they drew their guns and I'm like, why, why are you drawing guns? I didn't know what was going on. I mean, it seemed like they thought we had cocaine in the papayas or something. Guns drawn is, is way beyond and above the call of duty. The raid on Rossum involved no less than five government agencies. The FDA, the Los Angeles Health Department, the Los Angeles Sheriff's Department, the Los Angeles District Attorney's Office, and the California Department of Food and Agriculture. All five of these agencies declined interviews for this story, saying the investigation was ongoing. The agents proceeded to collect what they called samples for the case. They took 24 jars of the same kind of honey. For what purpose? If you're taking a sample of something, you need one jar of that honey, not 24. They just went into our freezer and they just took gallons and cheeses and whatever they wanted. They deliberately left this door open and the curtains open so it would spoil the food. And they knew this. By the end of the day, they kept it open for so long that a lot of stuff had gone hot and they couldn't sell it. Thousands and thousands of dollars worth of food. They don't want to see this happen. They want to stop this from happening. They're going to shut us down whenever they can in whatever way they can. I played this clip at length as I think it really brings home the transformation of America and the infantilization of its people who need to be stopped at gunpoint from consuming the wrong type of milk. To explain why it is this way, here's dairy farmer Mike Gubert. People drank raw milk for thousands of years um, and it was really around the turn of the 20th century that raw milk kind of started getting looked at in an unfavorable light. They put a lot of dairies in cities next to 
distilleries and basically they would be inside of a building being fed um, the, the spent grains from distilleries and it made these cows extremely unhealthy. They would actually add chalk to the milk to make it look like milk um, because it was so watery and these cows got tuberculosis and it spread like wildfire through these um, industrial dairies and I mean just disease was rampant in these in these dairies and and then so then the pasteurization process came about and it basically made made this milk drinkable and without killing you and and that's kind of when there started to be a change in how people looked at milk I mean there was still at that time there was still a lot of small farms out in the countryside that produced quality milk but as more and more people moved to the city and fewer and fewer people raised cows on a small scale, the, basically the pasteurized milk became the norm for everybody. And, and I think we're still left with that legacy that the state inspectors and federal inspectors still want to think that, that raw milk is unsafe when, when it actually can be produced extremely safe. There's, been no deaths from raw milk in the last 15 years, but if you look in the media headlines, you you wouldn't think that. You would think it's the most dangerous food out there. The reason we're in this position with raw milk being demonized, I, part of it is political, um, and part of it, but mostly it's it's money. Um, there's there's a lot of money in the dairy industry, and. You know, the big dairy doesn't really want competition. So, I mean, and they, they have sway with the media and with um, state and federal governments. I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a large industry with a powerful lobby. And, and it's, they kind of want to keep the status quo. There was a move to last year to expand the raw milk exemption to 10 cows and 30 goats. And I actually went to Salem and testified in support of that. Um, but there was the, the Dairy Board and the Farm Bureau brought out just all kinds of doctors and big dairymen to testify against it. And there was a lot of misinformation and fear. And, and basically it, it just died because there's, it just hasn't gone far enough yet. This is obviously just one small example you can multiply across the entire economy to see why I'm referring to the rise of a corporate imperialist state. Moving on, let's talk about the FBI. Hey, how you doing, man? I'm Agent Johnson. This is Special Agent Johnson. Oh, how you doing? No relation. I'm, uh, I'm Dwayne Robinson, LAPD. I'm in charge here. Not anymore. Theodore Roosevelt established what will become the FBI in 1908. Whilst we now take its existence for granted, there's nothing in the Constitution about the federal government having its own police force, especially one that can pull rank on state forces. Roosevelt denounced its critics, stating, There is no more foolish outcry than this against spies. Only criminals need fear our detectives. This turned out not to be true. Woodrow Wilson used the Bureau to enforce his laws banning freedom of speech and association during World War I, 
and to enforce the conscription of young men to fight his war in Europe. The FBI would go on to act as a domestic enforcement arm of the US Empire, harassing black, Native American, and anti-war activists in its famous counterintelligence program, COINTELPRO. Fifty years ago this week, a group of activists staged one of the most stunning acts of defiance of the Vietnam War era. On March 8, 1971, eight activists, including a cab driver, a daycare director, two professors, broke into an FBI office in Media, Pennsylvania, and stole every document they found. They wanted to document how FBI Director J. Edgar Hoover was spying on citizens and actively suppressing dissent. Soon after stealing the documents, the activists, calling themselves the Citizens Commission to Investigate the FBI, began leaking shocking details about FBI abuses to the media. The documents exposed COINTELPRO, the FBI's secret counterintelligence program, a global, clandestine, unconstitutional practice of surveillance infiltration and disruption of groups engaged in protest, dissent and social change. Targets included the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King. The Black Panthers, the American Indian Movement, the Young Lords, anti-war groups, black booksellers and other groups. The leaked documents triggered congressional investigations, increased oversight and the eventual passage of the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act. The FBI never knew who was involved in the break-in until 2014, when several of the burglars made their identity public to coincide with the publication of The Burglary, a book by former Washington Post reporter Betty Metzger, who'd reported on the leaked documents back in 71. In 2014, Betty Metzger appeared on Democracy Now! One of the things that I remember most from those files was the, the truly blanket surveillance of African-American people that was described. It was in Philadelphia, but it also prescribed national programs. It was quite stunning. First, it described the surveillance—it took place in every place where people would gather—churches, classrooms, stores down the street, just everything. But it also specifically prescribed that every FBI agent was supposed to have an informer just for the purpose of coming back every two weeks and talking to them about what they had observed about black Americans. And in Washington, D.C. at the time, that was six informers for every FBI agent informing on black Americans. The surveillance was so enormous that it led various people, rather sedate people in editorial offices and uh, in Congress, to compare it to the Stasi, the dreaded secret police of East Germany. Wilson also introduced a federal income tax, although this is something all three candidates in the 1912 election had supported. This again changes the nature of the United States, as the federal government now has a financial relationship directly with individuals rather than the states they live in. The same could be said in policing terms about the FBI. This is what I mean about Washington DC shifting from a federal to a national government. The tax was sold as something that would only affect the rich. The vast majority of people were paying nothing, and even those earning over $11 million a year, in today's money, only got stolen for 7%. Needless to say, once the principle had been established, things didn't stay this way. The First World War provided an excuse for a dramatic hike, which certainly never returned to pre-war levels. Wilson is also responsible for the creation of the Federal Reserve, which is often heralded as the primary reason financiers like J.P. Morgan wanted him elected. 
The Fed is essentially a method of taxation through inflation that allows governments to fund its wars, whilst the banks benefit from membership in a cartel. This ensured that the market dominance of Wall Street finance was not threatened by the new banks emerging in Western states. I must confess my understanding of central banking is somewhat rudimentary, so I will link to some resources, including James Corbett's documentary on the Federal Reserve. I'll start to wrap up here. I'm going to leave the issue of military conscription to another episode, partly because it will fit in well with the First World War, partly because I just find it so abhorrent I want to dedicate more time to it. Next time I'll look at some of Woodrow Wilson's interventionist foreign policy prior to the Great War. The main book to read on this whole idea of the political left being a right-wing plot is Murray Rothbard's The Progressive Era. I would also recommend George Andrew Napolitano's highly readable book, Theodore and Woodrow. As I mentioned before, CJ Kilmer of the Dangerous History podcast is producing an excellent series on the life of Woodrow Wilson. Links to all these resources will be in the info box. I'd like to say thank you to the people who have signed up to the membership section or made a donation on Buy Me A Coffee. That really does keep this content coming. Rather than music this week, I'll play us out with a clip of Ron Paul speaking when he ran for the presidency exactly 100 years after Theodore and Woodrow did. Dr. Paul is finding a very creative way to answer a question on whether he is too old to run. I think it's the age of the ideas that person's presenting and is that person able to present these ideas. Freedom is a young idea. It's only been tested for a couple hundred years and we had a taste of it and we're throwing it away. But what I see others are doing, the others, especially in many of the other candidates, they have old ideas. It's totalitarian. It's a control of government, government policing the world, militarism, telling people how to run their lives, running the economy, telling people what they can put in their mouths and whether or not they can even drink raw milk. It's just it's just absolutely out of control but the idea that individuals are free that they have a natural right to their life and the liberty and they ought to be able to keep the fruits of their labor that is a young idea so i would say people are go with a young idea in somebody that can express them and interestingly enough it's the young people that fully endorse my campaign